The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I can't wait to preach this sermon. I have been, I've been feeling like a feeling of electricity in my body all morning. And it just started to rise and rise. And I almost went up before Herbert. I almost did. I was like, all right, was that one of those dead spots in the sur- right, It's time for me to go up. And I just started to move. And then I saw Herbert go forward. And it was like, you would have said, do you want to read the scripture? And I'm being like, all right. I am just that excited. This is an incredible chapter of scripture. I believe that faith is the eyesight of the soul. I've said that many, many times before. And by our faith, we are able to see into invisible spiritual realms. And we're able to see see with a similar kind of, but different kind of clarity that physical sight, physical vision gives us of the physical world. And as I prayed in my prayer a moment ago, we know every day we are surrounded by the glory of God in the visible physical realms. The majesty of God displayed in the radiant glory of a sunrise or a sunset or heard in the pounding of the surf along the coastline especially after a a big storm, even like a hurricane or something, you have a sense of the power of God in all of that. Or seen in the grandeur of trees that just soar a hundred feet up off of the forest floor. Or even study the intricacies of a little wildflower that seems insignificant, but it's got five purple petals and you pick it and you look at it and each one is perfectly symmetrical and beautiful and God has woven beauty and power and wisdom and love into all of these things. The sights and sounds of creation testify to the existence and wisdom and goodness and power of a creator. And God who made all things desired chose to put his invisible attributes in creation. To put them on display. And that glory streams into us mostly by our eyesight but by our, all, all our senses. Now John Calvin called physical creation the theater of God's glory. I love that expression, the theater of God's glory. That God is putting a show on every day of his glorious nature. Now, the normal vision which healthy eyes present to our minds of the glories of God in creation is similar to a higher vision, a vision of faith, which Almighty God grants to believers. The vision of faith is the ability to see not only the physical worlds as created by an invisible creator, so we see it differently, but also to see a spiritual realm beyond the pale, beyond the barrier between us and that spiritual world, be be able to see through, to penetrate it, the realm in which he lives, in which he rules, in which he is continually worshipped. This spiritual vision is granted as a gift by the sovereign grace of God. It is based on Scripture. Faith comes by hearing the Word. It's based on Scripture. And it testifies to us of the invisible realms of the spirit world that is infinitely soaring above us all. Now, this spiritual vision of faith is what will allow us this morning to follow the Apostle John on an incredible journey that he took so long ago. 
almost two millennia ago. A stunning, miraculous journey by the Spirit from the surface of the earth upward through the realms of the atmosphere through a mysterious doorway into the very throne room of God. We're going to, by faith, be able to follow him and see what he saw. And from that lofty heavenly perspective, we will see the earth and all of its events, including our own lives, in a wholly different light, in a new perspective. We will be humbled, I think, ourselves. We will be empowered to serve him with great courage and energy and not fear man. What can man do to me? Not fear our enemies, not even fear Satan or demons. And do great things that will last and have significance for all eternity from this heavenly perspective. The rest of the book of Revelation will unfold essentially from this heavenly perspective. In effect, the rest of the time we're going to be studying all of the things that are going to happen in this book will come primarily from that perspective. Revelation 4 and 5, these two chapters, are two of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. They should be seen together, although I'm only uh, doing Revelation 4 this morning. Revelation 5, God willing, next week. They give us an unprecedented glimpse into the throne room of God and into the purpose of all creation. Namely, the worship of God the Creator in all His glory, His infinitely majestic person and His astonishingly great achievements. That's why we exist. That we might worship such a God. So Revelation 4 will focus on God the Creator... And then next week, Revelation 5 will exalt Christ the Redeemer. And these two things together form redemptive history. And both of these visions are going to culminate in worship. Heavenly worship. And will thus invite us to get up out of our immediate mundane lives and be lifted up by faith through the Spirit into the heavenly realm so that we might render to God... A sacrifice of praise, of worship, continually, even while we live here on earth. So if you look at the end of this chapter, look at verse 11, Revelation 4, 11. It ends with these words, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So that's how Revelation 4 ends. Then... Revelation 5, 9 and 10, that ends that chapter with these words. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. And they will serve our God and reign on the earth. So both chapters end in worship. And they both flow from the worth of God. The creator. The worth of Christ the redeemer. That's the essence of worship. Indeed the old English word worship is really worth-ship. We have a sense of the worthiness of God and the worthiness of Christ. And these two chapters begin with a timeless invitation through the Holy Spirit to join the Apostle Paul on a spiritual flight, a journey no one had ever made or had ever described before. So it begins with that invitation. Come up here. An invitation into the heavenly realms. Look at verse 1. After this I looked and behold there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So it starts with this 
these words after this. So the, revel, the, the vision of Revelation 1 through 3 is over now. And after that vision comes the next vision. Now let's review a little bit. The Apostle John is in exile on the island of Patmos. In exile because of his faithful, bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His tender shepherding of the churches of Christ. He was punished by exile, not by death. ...on the rocky island of Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was worshiping. And he heard a voice behind him like a trumpet. And he turned around and he saw the resurrected, glorified Christ. Radiantly glorious, moving through seven golden lampstands... ...which represented seven churches, actual churches, local churches in Asia Minor. These churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum... Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were literal churches. And the seven lampstands represented those churches. And Jesus moving through them represents his ongoing care for local churches. The number seven being the number of perfection. And so he cares for every local church. But especially he focuses on these seven. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, those chapters that followed, we have his direct addresses to the seven churches. But then through them to all the churches that have ever been. Because each of the seven letters ends with the same uh, command. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says collectively to the churches. And so we've had seven sermons in Revelation 2 and 3. So after this, with that first vision established. And I think it's so important because the book of Revelation is an incredible book. And it's going to unfold and all kinds of mysteries will flow from it. But really the church of Jesus Christ, its final perfection in glory. Free from all sin really is the point of all of this. The glory of God and the salvation of his people. That's where we're going. And so it's right for us to be in with Christ and his church because that's the point of everything that the Lord is doing in redemptive history. So after this, what did John see? Behold. So we have behold a door and then we'll soon have behold a throne. And so again that word behold, a sense of unveiling, the the revelation idea. And so there's something that he hadn't seen before and suddenly now he sees it. Verse 1, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven. Now this word door, it's a, it's a passageway into the heavenly realms and the door stood open for him. This represents, as we've talked about in Isaiah 64, says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Remember we talked about that? And then the baptism of Jesus, there was a tearing of the, of the heavens. So there's this kind of membrane or barrier between the physical five sense world that we live in all the time and then beyond it, a spiritual realm that cannot be perceived by science by the five senses, but we as believers, we think it's there. And there's some kind of a barrier in some sense between them as proven by a number of these types of of verses. And so in this wall, this barrier, suddenly, behold, there's a door. And the door's open. And the, the doorway is above him. It's lofty. It's up in the heavens. It's up in the sky. So this is a picture of the infinite loftiness of God. He always uses this, this elevation idea. Because God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's below us, around us, above. But above us, positionally, greater than us, ruling over us, authoritative. And so there's that sense of the door and heaven is up. We tend to think of it. When Jesus prayed, he looked up. So there's that sense of, of the loftiness. And so there's this door. So that's what he saw. What did he hear? Verse 1, it says, after this, there was a door. And then a voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So beyond the vision of the open door is a powerful invitation 
from the voice that had first spoken to him, which we believe is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who spoke to John in Revelation because when he turned around he saw Jesus and there's a strong implication that he's the one that spoke. And he says a voice uh, speaking like a trumpet. So you get the sense of it being loud and clear and piercing. The Apostle Paul said if the trumpet sounds an uncertain call, who will follow it into battle? So there's that sense of clarity and, and volume and beauty maybe and musicality. Jesus alone can give this invitation to mortals. He's the only one. He's the son of man. He's the only one that can invite us to do this. And the command is clear. Come up here. It's an invitation from Jesus Christ to a sinful human being to rise up from planet earth. To rise up from the earth and come to heaven and leave the surface of the earth and partake in the heavenly life. Notice also the promise that Jesus gives. I will show you what must take place after this. Because we've noted many times before, especially in the book of Isaiah, only God knows the future because only God can decree the future. So we have that sense of, I will show you what must take place, not what might take place after this, what most certainly will take place after this. God's ability to, to know the future is tied to his ability to decree the future. It's the same from that flows his ability to announce or proclaim the future, predict it. God is a king. And that's going to be the centerpiece of this whole sermon today. His kingly sovereignty is the key to his predictive power. In Isaiah, we've seen many times the declaration of this sovereign power over the nations. God rules over the nations, all of them. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and, and all of its people are like grasshoppers. God's throne is mighty and the nations are like a drop from the bucket and like dust on the scales. And as we saw in Isaiah 14, 26 and 27, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out and who is able to turn it back? The plan and the hand, these two things together. So God has a plan and he has sovereign power. So the book of Revelation speaks in great detail about the things which must take place after this. There's a great deal of prophecy about the future in Revelation. The terrible future of the final phase of human sin and rebellion against God the King. Culminating in the wickedness and the blasphemous reign of Antichrist. Who will somehow try to take the place of God and throne and demand worship as God. And the terrible future of the great tribulation, a time of distress any like, like any that's ever been seen in history. That's going to be poured out on planet earth of devastating plagues and judgments on earth. Displaying clearly the wrath of God. And the clear prediction of the second coming of Christ. In great power and great glory. To destroy his enemies. In a just wrath. And to judge all earth. The thousand years. The new heaven, the new earth. All of these things, these predictions, these future events. The eternal state, heaven and hell. I will show you what must take place after this. Well, John ha Jesus has invited John to do something he cannot do. He's given him a command and he has no native power to do it. To rise from the surface of the earth and go through a doorway standing so far above him into the heavenly realms. It is a clear command that he cannot obey unaided. 
And so God sends the Holy Spirit to lift him up. Look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. This is very much like the spirit journeys taken by the prophet Ezekiel in his ministry. For example, Ezekiel 8.3. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. I've always found that interesting. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem. Ezekiel 8.3. So you have the same kind of thing. A spirit journey, a spirit vision. Now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to speak more uh, uh, carefully about the significance of the Spirit for our own journey as well. So let's just pause right there on that thought. So, in verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me, behold, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. This is the center of the universe. We've come at last to the glowing center of the universe. Almighty God on His throne. Center of everything. It's the first thing that John sees, again with the word behold, a throne in heaven, one seated on it. Now, many people claim to have near-death experiences. You probably read about them or heard about them, that kind of thing. Tunnel of light and all kinds of other things. I don't know what to make of it. I tend to be skeptical because they don't come with the, uh, the, uh, the authority of the word of God. And so I wouldn't put any stock in it. I wouldn't build a theology. I wouldn't watch a whole movie about it, uh, a near-death experience and what it was all like, etc. Other religions have their own vision of heaven. We were learning this morning about Islam and they have a vision of a kind of a paradise and virgins and eating grapes off of silver trays and things like that. There's the vision of heaven. This is ours. This is our vision of heaven. And it's God. God enthroned. That's what heaven is. Heaven is God enthroned. There are several visions of heaven in the Bible. Not many, actually. Ezekiel had one in Ezekiel 1 that I believe stretch, stretches language to the absolute breaking point. Go ahead and read it like this afternoon. You know what I mean. He has wheels within wheels and, and coals and fire. And above him was, uh, you know, uh, an expanse. And above that, a throne and all that. It's just like, how do I put into words what I'm seeing? Daniel 7 has a very similar vision to the one we're going to study today. Very clear and very powerful. And there's a strong connection between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Then the apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven one day. And he heard inexpressible things. He says things that man is not permitted to talk about. I find that fascinating. He saw a vision of heaven, but he wasn't allowed to talk about it. I mean, can you imagine how hard that would be? What did you see, Paul? I can't tell you. But it's amazing. John is allowed to tell us what he saw through the Spirit. This is the most important reality there is in the universe. The awesome truth that there is a God. There is one God. And he's an enthroned God. He sits on a throne of power. And he rules over heaven and earth. This is the central reality of heaven. The central reality of earth. Central reality of the past. Of the present. And of the future. And should be the central reality of your life as well. Nothing's more important than God enthroned. As we shall see the word throne is mentioned 38 times. In the book of Revelation. 17 of them are in these two chapters. Revelation 4 and 5. Very strongly emphasized after the first three chapters. This throne. It's as though God really wants to establish his clear sovereignty. Over all of the dreadful and glorious events. That are about to be unfolded in these chapters. 
God enthroned is the central reality of heaven. And the inhabitants of heaven, they all know it and they worship God for it. God enthroned is the central reality of the unfolding history of earth. And that is almost universally denied by the rebellious human race. They're even in, either indifferent to God enthroned or hostile t- to him. God enthroned should be, as I said a moment ago, the central reality of your every day, of your every moment. Of your marriage, your family, your career, your days, your studies as a student, your life as a teenager. The, the, the throne of God should be the center of everything. Is he? Is God enthroned the center of your life? You just need to look in the mirror to say, is this the center of my life? All right, now surrounding the throne, coming from the throne, before the throne, that's what John is going to try to relate. Imagine the challenge of trying to put it all in words. Thanks be to God for plenary verbal inspiration through the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit said, here John, try these words. How would you put it into words? Look at verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow, resembling an emerald encircled a throne. John describes God in his blinding glory. Unlike Paul, John's allowed to try it, but the description's very brief. And, and you could just zero in on overpowering light and overpowering sound. That seems to be what he describes. The light seems to be like the sparkling of a diamond. A jasper is a perfectly clear, uh, precious stone. And the only one I know of that's perfectly clear and precious is a diamond. So you can picture a diamond. When a diamond is perfect, perfectly clear, and it's cut properly with its facets just right, skillfully done, it has a kind of an internal fire. And it kind of comes off almost like a living rainbow. And I almost wonder if that's what John is describing here. A fierce, fiery light. The glory of God also looks like a carnelian, which is a fiery red stone. Perhaps the color red reminds us of the wrath of God that will be depicted in this terrifying book, or perhaps even the blood of Christ. John also sees a rainbow surrounding the throne, but it's an unusual rainbow in that it resembles an emerald. So when you think of an emerald, you think predominantly of green. When you think of a rainbow, you think of multicolors. So how you put that together, I don't know. Be my guest. I don't know how to put it together. But it's an emerald rainbow. One scholar that I read, and I like this, said the green might just remind us of living things like plants, vegetation, on which all of life on earth depends. And so there's a sense of greenery that's going to be huge for God the Creator, which dominates the themes of this chapter. And so there's just that radiant display of the glory of God in living things. But I don't know for sure if that's what a green rainbow is all about. Now, surrounding the throne, there's this continual sense of encirclement of the throne. There's a clear message of the centrality of God in heaven. He's he's central. He's centered in heaven. Everything goes around him. Everything's focused on him. Like the sun as the center of the solar system. Massive. 330,000 times more massive than the earth. 1,100 times more massive than the second most massive thing in the solar system, planet Jupiter. Altogether, the sun has 99.8% of all the mass in the solar system. The sun is the deal. And by that massive gravitational pull holds everything in orbit around it, you get the same sense in heaven, that concentric circle of the throne of God. And around the throne, verse 4... 
are 24 other thrones. Look what it says. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now these thrones represent created beings who have been invested by God with the right to rule in some way. If you were to see someone seated on a throne with a crown, you're thinking a king. And they have a right to rule. So you have delegated authority, a picture of created beings that have spheres of influence delegated to them by God. So truly you have just there in the situation as you look at it, pictured the beautiful phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you want to do it like grammatically, he is the king with a capital K and they are little k kings around the throne. Delegation of power is central to the way God chooses to rule his universe. He doesn't need the 24 elders to do their jobs. He's not dependent on anything as if he needed anyone to serve him. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he doesn't need them, but he just chooses to delegate to create a being's authority and power. Well, who are these 24 elders? Lots of theories. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that a lot over the next number of weeks and months. Or a, a sanctified, I don't know. I'll do my best um, to interpret these symbols. Some say they're archangels. Some say exalted Old Testament saints. Some say angels representing both Old and New Testament saints. Some say perhaps the Old and New Testament saints themselves, like the patriarchs of the Old and the apostles of the New. The number 24 links us, or tends to to that direction, where you have the 12 tribes plus the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and and that's where you get 24. But we don't know for sure. They're not likely to be angels because they're called elders, and, and angels just don't age. And these seem to have an appearance of age and experience. Their white robes imply the clothing of righteousness and purity given to the redeemed later in the book of Revelation. Their crowns imply authority, but also achievement and an innate glory. Not independent, but they have their own glory, their own power, their own achievements, and their own purity. All of those are part of the 24 elders. In the end, it doesn't much matter who they are, but they represent, I think, all of us to some degree. They're created beings around the throne. And we can find a connection with them, even though we ourselves aren't seated on one of those 24 elders. Thrones And those crowns and their position on the, on the thrones give them an opportunity to give a gift of worship to God, which we'll see in a moment. Also, there are sights and sounds that are emanating from the throne. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. These signs actually happen many times in the book of Revelation. It gives a feeling of dread and terror. A sense of the awesome power of God ready to lash out in judgment on any who would oppose Him. A few years ago, it was a hot, windy, late afternoon August day in Bahama, where I live. And there came an awesome electrical storm right over our house. I love a good storm. And I was standing out on uh, the stoop of the front door of our home. And suddenly, right in front of me and around me, there was like this strange smell in the air. And then an almost instantaneous combination of blue-white lightning flash and a deep-throated boom right over my head. Now, like I said, I like a good storm, but that was a little too good of a storm for me. And I was in the door, closed. It's like, I'm not watching the show. I might soon become part of the show. And so I I was scared by this. 
It just, the, the boom resonated inside my chest cavity. God used these same sights and sounds at Mount Sinai to terrify the Jewish nation. To terrify them. It says in Exodus 19.16, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. As a matter of fact, the author to Hebrews in Hebrews 12.21 has this, The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Sense of absolute terror. So that's what's coming from the throne. Fear. Power. Before the throne, verse 5, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, or perhaps better, the sevenfold spirit of God. This is the blazing representation of the Holy Spirit of God as we've seen before. Do not think of a flickering candle like a sevenfold menorah, but like seven raging torches kind of together, the sevenfold fire of the Holy Spirit. The, the number seven, the number of perfection. And I just think that the Holy Spirit by that light is saying, apart from me, you readers would know nothing about this. So by the revelation of the Holy Spirit alone can we see the light of the glory of God in heaven now. Because we see through a glass darkly. But the light that we do see comes by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the written word of God. Also, verse 6, before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Now the sea was a source of terror to the Israelites. They were really just pure land lovers. If you look at the book of Jonah, and someone was talking about it technically, they don't, Jonah doesn't use good technical nautical terms. It's really kind of humorous if you know the Hebrew, which I don't, but I was trusting this scholar who was talking, I don't know it well, and he was just saying they, they're just land lovers. They had a deep abiding fear of the ocean because of the great unknown. It's deep and dark and beasts come up out of it like Leviathan and other beasts of the deep, and it's terrifying. Daniel 7 pictures a dark, churning sea. And out of that comes successively four great beasts that represent four world-dominating empires, one after the other. You're going to get the same image in Revelation 13. As the dragon, Satan, stands by the shore of a turbulent, wind-ripped sea... And uh, calls forth the final beast, the Daniel 7 is empires, the final beast, the Antichrist, comes up out of that turbulent, churning sea. So the turbulent dark sea, I think, is reasonable to see as humanity, billions and billions of people, peoples, nations, tribes, languages, in churning kind of rebellion and disorder, fighting against Almighty God. So you have Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, the wicked are like... Like a tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and muck. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But the sea before the throne of God is as placid as a mill pond. It's, it's absolutely flat like a mirror. Now what does that signify? Perhaps the power of Almighty God to pacify the nations. To subdue their rebellion and turn them into placid, peaceful reflection like a mirror of his own glory. I'm not in any way preaching universalism here, not at all. I'm just talking about like when Jesus was awakened by his disciples in the midst of a raging storm and got up and stretched out his hands and said, peace, be still. And immediately it was quiet. Now we have the living creatures. 
verses 6 through 8. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now, these amazing spiritual creatures, they are creatures, they're created beings, are mysterious and awesome. We don't fully understand the symbolism here. I was saying to my kids as we were driving in, you know, John describes them, but we're supposed to interpret them. So I said, I don't know, are we supposed to? Like, suppose you meet a guy that's got, like, ears sticking straight out of his head and a nose that has certain shape and all that. Do you try to find out why his ears look like that? Or do you say, his ears look like that? I don't really know. But I think in the book of Revelation, you're always wanting to interpret, and it's reasonably, uh, reasonable uh, for us to try to do that. But I'm just saying, I don't know for sure what they are and what they symbolize. But I do find it interesting, the particular creatures that are described here. First is like a lion. That seems to be a very powerful, like a king of the beasts, of the wild beasts. We tend to think of a lion that way. These are noteworthy creatures. And then the ox, one commentator said, the most powerful of all domesticated beasts. We tend to, whenever the, the ox is talked about in the Bible, it's talked about its massive strength, the strength of an ox. The third is man in, in creating the image of God and given power over all of these natural realms. And then the fourth is really what we could say would be the king of the, of the, of the birds, like an eagle in flight. And I don't know how it looked in flight, but like his wings were stretched out and able to soar through the air like God had made him to do. So to some degree it just represents the animal world and including humans as creatures similar to but lofty above other animals. And they're covered with eyes, meaning they're endowed with a special kind of knowledge perhaps. Enlightened, though not omniscient. The fact that they have these eyes is reported twice, so it's emphasized. They have six wings like the seraphim in Isaiah 6. So they're able to move around. They're able to get places and see what God has done and deliver uh, messages and do service to God as God wills. All right, so the heavenly scene is now set for the chief employment of heaven, quoting Jonathan Edwards, and that is praise, worship. Look at verses 8 through 11. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This cascading, incessant, pulsating worship. I think of it that way. First of all, it's incessant. Day and night, they never stop. It just flows. It just flows. And there's this sense of pulsating. Like you get the language, whenever this happens, then they do that. So it's not like steady state. It's like something happens and everyone worships. And then some other thing happens and then they rise up and worship. So it's, it's not static like you're looking at a picture. It's It's alive. And it's flowing and reflowing. And I love how in Isaiah 6, the seraphim are calling to one another. It's like, do you, do you see what I'm seeing? Do you see the holiness of God? And their voices in Isaiah 6 are so powerful, they make the doorposts and thresholds shake. And the temple's filled with smoke. That's the seraphim. And they're calling to one another. It's like, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And so they're together worshiping God. 
In Isaiah 6, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God is ever worthy of their praise. Their esteem of him never takes a single backward step. They just, however worthy of worship he was an incident ago, he's still worthy of worship now. It just never stops. The focus of the worship is the greatness of God in his person and the greatness of God in his achievements. Essentially his holiness. And then his great acts in creation and then in chapter 5 in redemption. So they say, holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is a special focus. They say it three times. And they celebrate also the power of God, calling him Lord God Almighty. And they celebrate the timelessness and eternality of God, who was and is and is to come. God is the same always. He never changes the immutability of God. He's also the God of history. He did great acts in the past. He's doing great acts right now. And he will finish those great acts in history. He is to come. It just builds and builds. It's interconnected, cascading, pulsating worship. It starts with a quartet, if you can look at it that way, the four living creatures. And then it expands to include the 24 elders. They, they, they join in. And then in Revelation 5, it ex- expands to include golden harps for musical instruments. So that starts to pitch in. And then in in Revelation 5 next, it expands to include thousands upon thousands of angels in 10,000 times 10,000. I've done the math. It's 100 billion. 100, 100 million angels. And so millions of angels. And then finally the climax at the very end of that chapter, every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth praising, worshiping God the Father on the throne and the Lamb of God who redeemed the people with his blood. That's what we're looking at in Revelation 4 and 5. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And they spur one another on by what they're saying about God. And then they cast their crowns before the throne. Look at verse 9 and 10. Whenever, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they lay their crowns before the throne. Now, you get the, the picture of mighty kings. They're seated on thrones. They've got glorious crowns. At some point, something moves them to do two very significant symbolic acts. They get up out of their thrones and throw themselves down on the ground. And in so doing, maybe at the same time, they take off their crowns and cast them or toss them before the throne of God. They are so far not like Satan, you can't even imagine. Satan tried to ascend in Isaiah 14 and rise to the throne of God and make himself like the Most High and topple the the Almighty God from his throne. That was the essence of his rebellion against God. I'm going to take God's place. But these created very powerful ruler beings are exactly the opposite. They're going down, casting themselves down and throwing their, their, their crowns before the throne. And they celebrate, in verse 10 and 11, they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So the focus of their praise is God's direct activity in creation. God the creator. God is worthy of worship because he is the creator of the universe. He deserves to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy of it. Now, understand what this means. We're not adding to God's glory. You cannot add a single thing to God. You're not adding anything as though God himself needed you to add something to his glory. 
So when, you, when we give glory and when we give honor and give power to God, we're not giving him anything. Rather, it's a recognition of what he already has. Or, or what we could say, an expanding, an ever-expanding recognition of how glorious and how filled with honor and how powerful he is. It's how he appears to you. Esteeming him for who he already is, always has been, always will be. And God's will is essential to the creation of all orders of life. By his will alone, everything exists. God willed at the beginning of the universe what orders of species, both spiritual and physical, there would be. He willed their places in heaven and on earth. And then spoke them into existence by his word of creative power. There is nothing in all the universe that he did not create out of nothing by the word of his power. Furthermore, the Greek implies this. Other verses openly teach it. It is by his continual will that they continue to have their being. God continues to will that you exist. So he has created a completely dependent universe. Absolutely dependent on his ongoing will to sustain the universe. Jonathan Edwards made so much of this fact that he probably might have gone a little too far. Who am I to say this about Jonathan Edwards? But it's like he's continually giving forth the word for creation. It's like a continual creation. Problem with that is that the Bible really does elevate that instantaneous moment of creation. And then more speaks of God sustaining. But he is trying to emphasize what we tend to forget. Apart from him... At any instant, nothing can exist. And that includes Satan, demons, wicked men, godly men and women. Every leaf, every blade, every tree, every rock. Continually upheld by the word of God's power. For in him we live and move and have our being. All right, that's the text. What are some applications that come from it? Any sense that you might want to apply some of these things to your life? Let's start with this. Stand in awe of Christ's salvation. We're going to celebrate it next week, but I want to start with salvation. I want you to see verse 1 and 2 as like almost a parable to some degree of your own salvation or of human salvation. I want you to see all the amazing ingredients there are there. After this I looked and behold there before me was a door standing open and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven. With someone seated on it. Alright. So this is a parable of human salvation. John's journey from rocky Patmos to heavenly glory. Is a picture of the salvation of sinners. The door standing open in heaven. Is only there because Jesus died on the cross. Were it not for the bloody death of Jesus on the cross, there would be no doorway standing open to heaven for sinners like you and me. By him alone, we sinners have access to God. He is infinitely above us and holy. We are of the earth. We are fleshly. We are sinful. And we are incapable of rising to heaven. This doorway was opened for us as sinners by the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross. As the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is his body. That's it. That's, that's our doorway to heaven. By his body, by his blood, there is now a door standing open for sinners like you and me. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's the atoning work of Jesus Christ by faith alone. That's the only doorway there is to heaven. Also Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is made righteous in God's sight, forgiven of our sins, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Access is a doorway, an open door. And Jesus is the only one who has the right to invite a sinner like you up off earth, off planet earth, through the heavenlies, into heaven. He's the only one with the right to do it. He's the only one that can say, come up here. And he does say that to you right now through the gospel. The gospel is inviting you to rise up out of spiritual death. Rise up out of rebellion to God. Rise up out of the muck and filth of sin and follow him being purified and cleansed by the blood of Christ by faith through that doorway that he alone has opened. We have constantly rebelled against the laws of God the King. We cannot take it on ourselves to enter that throne room. We don't have the right. Remember the story of Queen Esther? And she had to go in and intercede for her people, her Jewish people. And she, he, she was the beloved wife of the king of Persia. But she took her life in her hands to enter the throne room unbidden. She wasn't invited. And she would have been killed except that the king extended, extended the scepter to her. And she hadn't done anything wrong. She hadn't violated the laws of the kingdom of Persia. She hadn't done anything that her husband loved. But her life would have been forfeit if he had willed. How much more? We have violated all of God's laws to some degree. Not broken every single one. But, but you, break, you break one commandment, you've broken all of it. And Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you're even angry, you've murdered in your heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's commanded, you shall not covet. But we have been filled with covetous desires for our neighbor's goods. We violated the laws of the kingdom of heaven. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid the death penalty for us in our place so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and go through that doorway into heaven. And so he calls. He stands there and calls. And he calls anyone who will listen, come up here. Similar to this, the last and greatest day of the feast in John 7, 37, Jesus stood tens of thousands of Jews surrounding on that huge feast day. And he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's an invitation to come up here. Or again, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So we have that invitation, but I'm telling you, the command's impossible for you to follow. Un unaided. You can't do it. We have no power of flight. We have no power to ascend through the air and pass through a spiritual doorway. We have no strength to respond. The invitation is like to a paralyzed man to get up and run. Invitations like to a blind person to, to see the glories of the Grand Canyon. The invitations like to a dead person to get up and come out of a tomb. Some theologians strongly emphasizing human free will and ability. They say if God gives you a command, you can do it. Implying on your own, 
you have that ability, that native ability, such as to repent and believe in Jesus. I tell you, you don't. You don't have that kind of power. But if God extends the Holy Spirit to you, and if he takes out that heart of stone, and if he gives you a heart of flesh, you will most certainly believe in Jesus. And you will follow him to heaven. And such he has done for a multitude greater than anyone can count from all over the world. At once, look at verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit and moved on in, into heaven. The Holy Spirit of God takes the finished work of Christ and applies it to the souls of the elect when they hear the gospel. He convicts us of our sins. He makes Christ appear gloriously beautiful. And he gives you the life and power to rise and follow Jesus. And the destination of the journey, where is it? At the foot of the throne of God. And you're going to take Jesus' kingly yoke upon you. You're going to stop rebelling and start obeying. And you're going to live a whole different kind of life. That's salvation. That's what it is. So come to Christ. Follow him. Fly with him. Through the through atmosphere or through the air in your heart. And go through that doorway to the throne of God. And follow him and believe in him and worship him and love him. And someday, I don't know. I don't know what happens. I haven't died yet. But don't you think that for believers, there might be that voice of Jesus saying, come up here? Wouldn't that be sweet? I wonder if that's what my brother Mac Woody just went through a little while ago. Come up here. How could you say no? <laughs> Secondly, delight in God's sovereign throne. Don't fight it anymore. Don't resist it. Delight in it. Humble yourself before it. Cast yourself down before his sovereign throne. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. This is the one I esteem, declares the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So submit to his rule in your life. The natural man hates God's kingly rule and wants to fight against it. The essence of our salvation is delighting in God the king. So rest in God's providential control over earth's events. Rest in his sovereignty over the unfolding of human history. He is the God who was and is, to, is, and is to come. He was king in the Old Testament and he ruled over kings and empires. He is alive today. He's ruling over heaven and earth now. He is to come. He rules over the future. He's king over the future. And he sustains everything. That means nothing happens to you except by the will of God in some mysterious way. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. In light of this awesome sovereignty of God, why do you ever worry about anything? Why are you ever anxious about anything? Rest in God's sovereign power. And understand also, everything flows from the throne of God. The book of Revelation is going to depict awesome judgments that will flow from his throne. Christ will break the seven seals and judgment is going to flow. Seven trumpets are going to sound and judgment will flow. Seven bowls are going to be poured out on the earth and people are going to die. It's a display of the justice and wrath of God. The Bible reveals that both death and life flow from that throne. Daniel 7, 9 and 10, it says, His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing from the throne. That's wrath and judgment. But then at the end of Revelation, we've got the throne of God and a river of life is flowing from the throne down the streets of the city. Death and life flow from the same sovereign will of God. Thirdly, 
live to worship God every day on earth as it is in heaven. Just, I love what it says, day and night they never stop praising. What about you? I, I, I come and go, you know, I wax and wane. I have my praising times and then my not so much praising times. Honestly, it depends on how things are going for me. <laughs> really? God never changes. Just day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. God is holy. He's infinitely above us. He is the creator. We are the creature. And he's holy in that he hates sin and evil. In him, there's no darkness at all. He is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. And so we need to learn to worship like the heavenly beings do. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fourthly, stand in awe of God's creation. This morning as I was walking from that parking lot over there where I parked across, I'd been talking to Calvin. Uh, I'd been reading John Calvin's Institutes to him and he's in the natural theology section right at the beginning. Talking about all of the majesty and glory of God woven into nature. Every blade of grass. So I stopped. We have a pretty lush lawn here. Our lawn is pathetic in Bahamas. It's terrible. I mean, I'm working on it and I've got a good friend that's helping me and all that, but it's a fight. I have too many trees, I think. They're sucking water from it. But uh, I bent down and picked a, block, a blade of grass and it had like five little things coming off. It was a pretty awesome little blade of grass. And I was just like, God has woven wisdom and power and goodness even to this tiniest blade of grass. Think about all the various national parks you've ever been to. Ever been to Yellowstone? Seen Old Faithful? Geyser going up? You know, 8,000 gallons as high as 106 feet in the air every 45 to 125 minutes. Pretty cool. Or just even the Great Smoky Mountains with its lush old gro growth forest with that musty kind of smell. It's just, there's something powerful and old about it. Or Acadia National Park, that's one of my favorites with its rocky coastline and its incredible fall foliage. Something about the minerals in the, in, the, in the ground in New England just gives the vivid colors, beautiful. Or just the Carolina coastline with rolling ocean and sand dunes. God made all that. Think about all the wildlife you've ever seen. I've been to a Kenyan game preserve. I saw lions in their native habitat prowling around. I stayed inside the Jeep. Others got out to take pictures. I was thinking it wasn't a great idea. I didn't realize, I saw rhinos out there. I didn't realize like the most deadly wild animal in Africa is the hippopotamus. It kills more people than any other animal. They're very aggressive and big. Very big. I think about the zoo with all its staggering variety of animals and bird life there and sizes and behaviors and mating habits and capabilities. The cheetah and the ostrich. Who would ever make an ostrich to look like that? But God made it. And God openly boasted to Job about all the varieties of things that he's made. And, he, and think about the weather patterns, the hurricanes and breezes and zephyrs and shirakos, the hot desert wind and the wild nor'easter. As I was flying to Cameroon, I went over the North Africa coast and saw the Sahara Desert for the first time with my own eyes. It was just awesome. Just a whole bunch of nothing. But it was still awesome. Think about the starry host. And you look out when it's low humidity, you go out in the mountains and you look up and you can see the Milky Way. So many stars. I could go on and on. Heavenly worshipers delight in creation. They just stand in awe of what God has done. And think ahead to the new heaven and new earth and how beautiful it's going to be when there's no more decay or death. Fifth, draw near to the throne of God, throne of grace and prayer. You have needs, you have problems, you have issues. You have an open door to the throne of God. 
go in and lay your needs down before him. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then finally, cast your crowns down before God. How powerful is that image? The crown is yours. You did the works. You did the achievement. It's your throne. It's your crown. It was yours before you cast it. That's what I think Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira. The money was yours before you gave it. It's yours. It's special to you. But do you realize every good thing you've ever done, you did it by the power and strength of God? You didn't do anything apart from him. Apart from Jesus, you could do nothing. So recognize that and in some way fall down before the throne and cast your achievements and all of everything you think you are that's so great about you before the throne of God and give him the glory and the praise. Humble yourself and worship him for all of the good things that you've ever been or done. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the beauty, the majesty, the staggering truths that flow from these 11 verses. It's really hard to even believe. And I thank you for the time we've had to really touch on them lightly. There's so much more we could say. Father, I pray that you would strengthen each one of us to worship you as you truly deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.